Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridion. We've been looking at the Decalogue, the Law of God, the Ten Words or Ten Commandments. And, of course, we've been paying attention to the threefold distinction of the Old Testament law, the ceremonial and the civil, both of which have been abrogated, and the moral which endures. Indeed, the moral law itself, older than the Mosaic Covenant, written into the hearts and minds of men from the very beginning, and continues to be so today. So that's maybe the first important distinction. Ceremony and civil have been abrogated, but the moral remains. And then on page 50, and I want to simply bring this back to your mind, because this, I think, is the second very valuable distinction we need to keep in mind, and one that's very fitting for our own times. That is, if you look at... Page 50, question 74. We'll just look at the first three or four lines there where Chemnitz says, with regard to the curse and condemnation of the law because of sins, likewise, justification by works of the law, believers have been freed through Christ from the whole law and all of its parts. That is to say, then, the moral law which endures forever no longer curses or condemns us if we're in Christ. So the law, the moral law itself isn't put away, but its cursing and condemning function is, insofar as we are in Christ. And secondarily, then, that we would need to justify ourselves by the law. This promise held out by the law that the one who does it will live by it. Of course, no one can do it. That's utterly put away because we have a righteousness apart from the law, freely given in Christ Jesus. So those are the two ways in which the moral law itself is abrogated, in its condemning function and in its justifying function. Both of those have been put away by Christ. They have no place for us as Christians per se. New men in the proper sense. All right, then go with me to the top of 51, and we'll see then the way in which the law endures, the moral law endures. Second line from the top of page 51, but with regard to transgression or obedience, there is a great difference between the parts or kinds of the divine law, for the ceremonial and political laws of Moses have so been abrogated that we are not obliged to obey them. For it is not sin now when we fail to keep those laws, either by omission or by transgression. In fact, he that wants to observe them, out of a feeling of necessity, has lost Christ. But, and here's really the key, but all men are bound to obey the commandments of the Decalogue, and their transgression is in all men at all times accused and condemned unless there is remission. And that's what we were just talking about. Where there is remission, then the law loses its condemning, accusing power. Chemnitz continues, And Christ bestows his Holy Spirit on the believers, so that in them an obedience according to the commandments of the Decalogue is begun. Paul bears witness to this everywhere in his writings. So, then the moral law endures as something that, uh, for the Christian proper, guides us and is obligatory toward us in terms of its binding our consciences uh, to it, that this is God's will for us as his redeemed, saved, forgiven children. So again, that is just very important to keep in mind. In what ways are, is the law abrogated? Well, zoom all the way out. The civil and the ceremonial are abrogated. The moral remains. Is the moral abrogated in any way? Yes, in its condemning function, if we are in Christ. And yes, in its, in its justifying function, it is abrogated because we are justified by Christ. But does it stand as a moral rule and norm for Christians? Absolutely. And indeed, since the Holy Spirit has been given, we begin to fulfill the law, I mean, albeit with every caveat imaginable about the weakness, etc., etc., but we do begin to fulfill the law. And again, I think, you know, sometimes you'll find a, a smart aleck who will say, 
oh really well how are you beginning you know to do the law you christian you know point out and it's just a trap it's just a rhetorical trap so they can point and laugh and say oh look at the pharisee but i would actually say ironically the proof is precisely in the first commandment that we fear love and trust in god Whereas before I had no love whatsoever for God or the things of God, as a Christian, now I do. (laughs) That's the first and most obvious way in which the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and we begin to fulfill the law is because we actually do love God, whereas before we did not. And we begin to love the things of God, whereas before we found them boring, irrelevant, etc., etc. Okay, well, how was that for a very lengthy preface? So there is the intro, and we'll begin with an invocation and with the Lord's Prayer. And then we're going to pivot very quickly into the question of ceremonies and laws created in the church by men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so at question 75, we wrap up this question about the ceremonial law, and that's going to then shift us into the ceremonies of the church. So if you look at question 75, and I love his answer here, here's the question, which rather is put in a statement form. Prove with passages of Scripture that the Mosaic ceremonies have been abrogated and abolished in this way. And he gives a couple of citations from Galatians, and of course, they're sufficient, but I love his next answer even more. And the whole epistle to the Hebrews (laughs) deals for the most part with that one theme. It does. If you think the ceremonial laws are still in place, then you've got to tear the book of Hebrews out of your Bible. And I'm told this, I mean, I don't fly in these in these circles of uh, kind of what the like the cutting edge modern contemporary evangelicals are up to but i've been told that they're trying to do this whole like re- reinvent the ceremonial law start eating according to the ceremonial diet and dressing according to the ceremonial ways and all of this and it's just like all right friends well, when you reject the sacraments, I guess you got to invent all kinds of forms of worship and reinvent all kinds of forms of worship but So apparently that is a a contemporary thing. All right, so the Mosaic ceremonies have been put away. Then question 76 follows on the heels. Ought there then be no ceremonies, whatever, in the church of the New Testament? Hmm. His answer, the chief true rites of the apostolic church are these. Baptism, Matthew 28, 19. Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.23. Holy assemblies to hear the word of God for common prayers and collection of alms, Acts 2.42 and 46. And the use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, 1 Corinthians 5.3 and following, 2 Corinthians 2.6 and following. But besides those rites, the church has appointed and ordained also some other ceremonies in adiaphora or things indifferent, namely, things in harmony with the word of God and useful to the church for this, that in the proclamation of the divine word, in the administration of the sacraments, in saying prayers, in gathering alms, and in the use of the keys, all things be done in order, decently, and for the upbuilding of the church. A lengthy sentence there, to be sure. So, what are these ceremonies in the church that cannot be abrogated? Those that Christ himself has instituted and given. That's really what this list is. Does does he give baptism 
as a rite and ordinance, as a ceremony within the New Testament church. Yes, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them whatsoever I have commanded you. Okay, and then the Lord's Supper, of course, as St. Paul says, well, let me, let me just, so, the main point of the institution of the ceremony of the Lord's Supper would be those words, this do. So you can remember in the words, and I try to actually pause and draw this out because otherwise it's like it doesn't actually make sense. So on the night on which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. That's what he did. We don't have a command yet. We've just got a description of what he said that night. But when he says then, this do in remembrance of me, now we have a rite, now we have an ordinance, now we have a ceremony, now we have a sacrament. Okay, all of those words are fitting. So when Christ says this do, and the same thing is with the cup, given and shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins, that up to that point in the words of institution, simply describing what he said that night. But then he says, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That last sentence is the actual institution of the ceremony or sacrament in the church. So this do. Okay? So again, we have Christ commanding baptism, Christ commanding the Lord's Supper, the holy assemblies to hear the word of God, so hearing the word of God, prayers, collection of alms, that all is exactly what the early church is doing right on the coattails of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The use of the keys of the kingdom. Um, Again, this is where Christ in John 20 commands his disciples saying, um, As I was sent, I am sending you. And he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So there is the dominical command of our Lord to forgive and retain sins. And then, of course, what you see in 1 Corinthians 5 and in 2 Corinthians 2 is a concrete example of that taking place in the church where St. Paul has reason to bind a man in his sins. And then when that man comes to repentance between 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, then announcing his forgiveness and his release from those sins in 2 Corinthians 2. Okay, so that is the first class or category of ceremonies, and these have the command of God. Make sense? Okay. So, it's, yeah, it is a little bit deceiving sometimes when we go, okay, well, so all the ceremonies of the Old Testament have been abrogated. And what, okay, do we have any ceremonies? No, we've been set free. No, not true. Not true. Although I might, I might fail that test if somebody just asked me out of the blue. I'd kind of be like, yeah, maybe, okay. So, no, we need to remind ourselves that the Lord actually does institute these concrete ceremonies. And Christianity isn't formless and void. It's concretely located in these things. All right, then the second classification is this word adiaphora, which is defined here as things indifferent, which in and of itself on its face probably does more harm than good as a definition. It is the technical definition of that word, but it's not how it's used in the church. How it's used in the church is rather in this theological sense. Things neither commanded nor forbidden. That's what adiaphora is. Things neither commanded nor forbidden. But are they truly indifferent? I don't know. let, Let me ask you a question. Our sanctuary flooring. God hath not said it shall be thus. Am I right? God hath not said it 
shall thus not be. (laughs) So he's left it free. He's neither commanded nor forbidden. Okay, but is it truly indifferent? I know. Let's put in rainbow-striped carpet. Let's put in wild zebra print carpet with some leopard print woven in. So you see the problem. I mean, even though it's a stupid example. It's not indifferent. (laughs) It's very important. And we don't want to fight over it as Christians, but we're not going to allow something. You're not going to say, well, it's already offered. It's indifferent, so it doesn't matter. Uh, that's not a good understanding of what the word audi offer is. Neither commanded nor forbidden. Now, as soon as we've established that, the conversation hasn't ended, which is unfortunately the way it goes in a lot of the LCMS. The conversation has only begun. We now know that this isn't a divine ordinance. What are we going to do? <laughs> and how can we be as faithful to God and his purposes, as wise as possible in the use of this thing that God has neither commanded nor forbidden? Okay, so labeling something adiaphora doesn't end the conversation, it begins the conversation, and we're just recognizing it as a subclass and subcategory to those things dominically commanded by the Lord. Does that make sense as a distinction, as a class? So, you know, music, like the tonality, the instruments used, the general sense and feel of music, that's all left as adiaphora. But is it indifferent? Should we have a hardcore rap service? Should we have a death metal service? I mean, there's some things that are not fitting and even though they're adiaphora, they're neither commanded nor forbidden, they're not fitting. Okay? And in truth, and, and to add one more layer of complexity to it, just in passing, there are times in which things that are adiaphora can become sinful. And they become sinful if they are being abused or used in such a way that they are, for example, harming or harming the faith of, that would be a better way to put it, the weaker brother. So can you, as a Christian, eat meat? Yeah, of course. But what if the conscience of the newly converted brother is such that he's deeply scandalized by that and led back into paganism? Paul says, I'll never eat meat again. So there's something that is in principle adiaphora, whether you eat meat or not. But for the sake of my brother, it ceases to be adiaphora and it becomes compelling out of my love and service to him. Now, ultimately, we want to get that brother to a point where his conscience is better formed to where we can eat meat and he can eat meat. But in the interim, until we can get his conscience better formed... I'm going to set aside my quote-unquote Christian freedom for the sake of my brother. Okay, so that's just one more wrinkle, and obviously if you're familiar with the scriptures, you're familiar with this. Um, I mean, another example would be circumcision. Does it matter in this right now in the church if you have your uh, newborn boy circumcised or not? No, it's neither commanded nor forbidden. It doesn't have anything to do with anything, Okay. Circumcision is in itself an adiaphora, neither commanded nor forbidden for a new Christian, a New Testament Christian, excuse me, right? But now what if all of a sudden, like the false teachers mentioned in Galatians, they start preaching that it is necessary to have your males be circumcised in order for them to be true Christians? Okay, well, that which is adiaphora has now been wrapped around the axle, and now it's been made binding on consciences in such a way that it's entered the question of justification. Paul says, now, if under this false belief you are circumcised, then you are fallen from grace. You are severed from Christ. So again, another example of something that in and of itself or inherently is adiaphora, situationally can become not adiaphora. And you see this, for example, in Timothy and Titus. 
I hope I don't have this backwards. If I do, somebody please correct me. But Paul will have Timothy be circumcised, but not Titus. And you go, why? Because the circumstances are completely different. And Paul is using that appropriately within the circumstances for the sake of his brothers. Okay? So, again, this concept of adiaphora, a very important concept and often misunderstood concept. For many, many years in the church, I heard that's adiaphora, end of discussion. You can do whatever you want. And that's just not right biblically or practically. Let me pause there and see if you have any thoughts on this second category um, in which many ceremonies fall. Yes, I see a hand there. He does specify um, things in different, namely things in harmony with the word of God. And then later, he used this to uh, these kinds of ceremonies unto the edification. Or so. Mm-hmm. so he gets us there. Yeah, yeah, and I'm I'm taking a broader, wider view of Adiaphora, of Adiaphora conceptually, and what he's interested in doing is going to be more like rites and ceremonies of the church proper. So the way he's going to take it is really much more in the way of divine service. Yeah. The broader, yeah, give you the broader take, and then then we'll narrow down in the sense that Chemnitz means it exactly right. Okay, so let's just pick up then and do a little bit of dissection of that sentence right after the references to 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, so about the fourth line. But besides those rites the church has appointed and ordained, notice who has done the appointing and the ordaining, the church. So this is de iuri humano, of human origin, and that's fine, it's good. But we have to recognize that as distinct from de iuri divino, divine origin. So the church has appointed and ordained also some other ceremonies in adiaphora or things indifferent, namely things in harmony with the word of God. So there in terms of what we're looking at in the ceremonies of the church, it needs to be in harmony with the word of God. Okay, is having an intro it in harmony with the Word of God. Of course, it's an intro psalm. It is the Word of God. It's in harmony. Would some sin be committed if we didn't have the intro it? No. Okay, there's an example. So it has to be in harmony with the Word of God and useful to the church for this. So that's another criteria. Is it useful? I mean, there's all kinds of good things that you could do, but, is it, but are they useful? He continues that in the proclamation of the divine word, in the administration of the sacraments, in the saying of prayers, in gathering alms, and in the use of the keys, all things be done in order. Okay, that's always been a major principle in Christian use of ceremonies. And you can see how this is very much focused. Chemnitz is very much focused on the divine service here. That everything be done in order, decently, and for the upbuilding of the church. So that we don't have chaos breaking out in the divine service. We don't have things going on that are hindering the word of God or not in harmony with the word of God or not useful to the church for this. So... You know, one of the reasons why the Lutheran Church differs from American evangelicalism, we don't have a right of the pastor driving the motorcycle down the center aisle or parachuting in or, you know, blowing the fog machines everywhere because these things aren't in harmony with the Word of God or useful to the church. So you can see how that functions as a principle. Well, isn't it audiophora? God neither commands nor forbids riding motorcycles or parachuting into church or any of the other nonsense. Right, it is audiophora. It's neither commanded nor forbidden. That's not the end of the conversation. It's the beginning of the conversation. (laughs) Is this in harmony with God's word? Is this useful? And if not, then we're not going to use it. No rainbow-colored carpet. No death metal services. 
Okay, wrapping up this paragraph from Chemnitz, and since Paul allows the churches this liberty, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, it will therefore be permissible to use this kind of ceremonies unto edification. That's for the that's building up, that's what that means. So unto edification for that purpose and without loss to, of Christian liberty. Okay, what Chemnitz is really getting at is that what happens in the Lutheran in, in the areas in which the Lutheran church is the religion of the prince, and so Lutheranism is the religion in that geographical region, they will say, this is what worship looks like. And you can find this in Martin Chemnitz's church orders, okay, which isn't like a menu where you get to you know, order what kind of... It's rather... This is the liturgy that will be done in this region. These are the ceremonies that will be employed. Okay. So it's important to understand that in the background, Henrich is saying, look, this can be chosen and asserted by leaders of the church in such a way that it's a uniform practice for our churches, plural, and this can all be done without the loss of Christian liberty. All right, any thoughts on... Paragraph 76. Okay, yeah. The musical analogy of harmony, the idea that uh, if we were to sing in harmony, it doesn't just mean we could just somebody sing the melody and then we can sing whatever we want. We could, but likely that would be discordant. And so what constitutes harmony is like a perfect fifth, for example, would be a consonant with an interval. Yeah. You, you could analyze what's happening physically with it and while it might not necessarily mean that everything is consonant with I mean, good harmony you have consonances and dissonances. I'm not sure how that would apply to this, but um, there might be some I don't know what do you think. Well I would think that there's um, you know weeping and laughter and uh, rejoicing and sorrow and there are things that are of their essence are dissonant and yet woven together appropriately uh, don't technically harmonize but do affect a beautiful song. The law yeah, gospel sure. being the, yeah, the dissonance. Sure. The, the word the of condemnation, that yeah. alien condemnation and the the yeah, gracious intention of God. Sure, absolutely. Absolutely. So, obviously, I mean, I, I, this might be a little bit of a little bit of a tangent, but if you listen to somebody like Bach, he is writing his music with law and gospel, with consonance and dissonance, all theologically understood. He's trying to communicate theological ideas through his music, right? Yeah, so that would be very much like in harmony with the word of God is, are you trying, is this ceremony trying to do what God is trying to do? That would be maybe a shorthand for in harmony with the word of God. Okay, great. Thank you for that comment. So question 77, are all papistic ceremonies without distinction to be either rejected or accepted and observed? Uh, you find this in the Radical Reformation of the 16th century. You still find this today, just this allergy over and against Rome. If it's Roman Catholic, we don't do it. Okay, or, that's too Roman Catholic. We hear all this nonsense. Okay, that is not a good criterion. So we're going to find out from Chemnitz. He says, there are some ceremonies in the papal realm that are diametrically opposed to the word of God and connected with manifest superstition or idolatry. What would be one of those? Well, the sacrament of the Mass, turning the Lord's Supper, the divine gift of free forgiveness, a delivery from God through Christ to us, into our meritorious sacrifice to God and re-presentation of the sacrifice of Christ to God for a temporal and quantifiable 
number of sins. I mean, this kind of thing is just an abomination. It just is not what's going on in the original Lord's Supper or in the Lord's Supper in the Orthodox Church. So that would be an example where you can, it's diametrically opposed to the Word of God. And connected with manifest superstition and idolatry, I mean, you can think of someone like the, the holy water and this... Uh, Things that earn you graces, quote-unquote, right? That if you do this thing, you get a set amount of grace. It's this whole economization of stuff that can't be economized. If we, but if we first turn grace into a substance, then we can quantify said substance, and then we can attach that to a specific kind of prayer or kind of devotional practice, and we can mete out said grace. An economy is created. But all of that is antithetical to God's word and manifests superstition and idolatry. Okay. He continues then, such are the sacrifice and the mass. That's what I just mentioned. The invocation of the saints. That's largely praying to the saints etc. Those things are necessarily to be omitted and rejected. Some things originated in the ancient or primitive church, insofar as they are adiaphora and useful for edification, they can be freely retained and used. But some have little use and do very little for either order or decorum or edification. In these things, one must have regard for the weak instead of Christian liberty. For their sake, they can be observed at the right time, according to the teaching and example of Paul, Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 9. But there are in the papacy also many childish, useless, and truly histrionic ceremonies (laughs) that are properly rejected and abolished since they are not in harmony with ecclesiastical solemnity. I mean, what is kind of a childish, useless histrionic ceremony from history? I don't know how much they're done this day and age, to some extent, maybe. Um, But like the Corpus Christi processional, where you take the consecrated host. Now, Christ says, take, eat. Does he ever say, take, put on a pole and parade about with a whole bunch of falderall and weeping and wailing and bowing down? And No. So, I mean, I think that that's an example of something that Chemnitz would call histrionic, childish, useless. It's like Jesus says, do this, and we say, hey, can we do anything but that? <laughs> take, eat, take, drink. How about if we just eat? Take, eat, take, drink. Uh, how about if we... Put it in a little cage and worship it. Take, eat, take, drink. How about if we put it on a pole and parade it around town? I mean, do you, can you see who's having fun here? I mean, you've got Christ who says, take, eat, take, drink for you for the forgiveness of sins. How about if we ignore that and turn it into our sacrifice to God? It's just variations on a theme. Once you see what's going on, you see that all the, ab- the sacramental aberrations of Rome are sort of of a piece And the theme that they're playing on is, what does Jesus say? Let's do the opposite or something different. Okay, any thoughts on 77? 78. What if those indifferent ceremonies are imposed and required on basis of either necessity or worship or righteousness? In that case, this is always to be observed, that Christian liberty remain intact according to the teaching of Paul and Christ. When, therefore, the enemies of sound doctrine impose and demand such things as in their nature are adiaphora, neither on the basis of necessity, or excuse me, either on the basis of necessity or with this intent and purpose, that in this way the pure doctrine be gradually destroyed and uprooted, but the false gradually introduced and established, then one must follow the example of Paul who said, 1 Corinthians 7.19, circumcision is nothing, that is, it is an indifferent thing. Well, we should do just a little bit of 
digging here into what's being stated. So Christian liberty has to be observed. Consciences can't be bound where God's word does not bind them. So if I say, hey, you shouldn't murder, I've just bound your conscience. It's necessary that you not murder. It's necessary that you not commit adultery. I've just bound your conscience. But I ha- have I done so on the basis of human teaching? No, on divine teaching. Your conscience is bound to divine teaching. Okay? Um, but if I say to you, hey, it is necessary for you to be a Christian to be circumcised, is that divine teaching? It's not divine teaching. That's human teaching. So I'm, I've bound your conscience where God has not. Okay? And that is then a violation of Christian liberty. So can a church, let's, um, let's give a concrete example on something that I may do in the future. Um, what, what if Faith Lutheran Church said, this is what our collective Lenten fast is going to look like. These are the days we're going to fast and the way we're going to fast. Please join us. Okay, Have I bound your conscience? No. You can say, no, I'm not going to do that. Or I'm going to do it and make it harder. Or I'm going to do it and make it easier. Okay, are you, are you committing a sin if you don't do it? No, nobody's saying that. If you make it harder, are you committing a sin? No. If you make it lighter, are you making... No, you're not committing a sin. Okay, your conscience isn't bound. You're utterly free. But it's still this sort of thing of, um, hey, let's do this. Okay, so that's, we need to make a distinction there. That's not the binding of a conscience. But now if I said you must do this, otherwise you're going to be under church discipline. Now I've bound your conscience. And I've bound your conscience in a way that God hasn't. I mean, Christ does say when you fast, but he doesn't say how you fast. And if I make that very specific and peculiar and, and force you to do it on pain of excommunication or something like this, or pain of sin, then I've bound your conscience where Christ has not. Okay, so where the conscience is bound where Christ has not bound it, that's a violation of Christian freedom, Christian liberty. So that's what we want to have our eye out for. But sometimes we go too far with that. And then we get nervous, and for like, I don't know, entire decades, maybe even entire centuries, the church is so scared of being legalistic, they never prescribe anything. So that language of prescribe is helpful, because a doctor gives you a prescription. You might go and say, I'm having heartburn. So he gives you prescription for heartburn medicine. Is it a sin if you don't take that medicine? No, it's not a sin. But would it be wise to take that medicine? Yeah, probably so. Okay, so that's, that's the difference. Um, so if a pastor prescribes a fast, okay, is it a sin not to fast? No, but it, would it be wise to fast? Yes, it's a prescription. It's not binding your conscience, but it is a statement and assertion of a certain kind of wisdom. Okay, so those are the categories we want to be able to think in, and Chemnitz is helping us out with that. Okay, now what happens, and this is the third line again, just doing a little more analysis here. Chemnitz writes, When therefore the enemies of sound doctrine, that's something else we have to fetch out. The enemies of sound doctrine impose and demand such things as in their nature are adiaphora, either on the basis of necessity or with this intent and purpose that in this way the pure doctrine be gradually destroyed and uprooted, but the false gradually introduced and established, then one must follow the example of St. Paul who said, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, circumcision is nothing, that is, it is a thing indifferent. Okay, so I think they're dealing with Rome and Rome enforcing this stuff via the interims. We're going to learn more about that in our Thursday morning uh, service. Um, when we look at the background of the formula of Concord and the various articles, always in the background are going to be uh, the interims. Okay? And that's where Rome was trying to put political pressure on the Lutherans and say, these are the things we need you to conform to, otherwise we're going to smash you. Oh, that's great. Okay, but what do we see in our day and age? In our day and age, I think we see this. Hey, let's all worship like Baptists. What could go wrong? I promise we'll keep Lutheran substance and evangelical form. What could go wrong? And lo and behold, after a generation of worshiping like Baptists, people end up believing like Baptists. Well, what's wrong with quote-unquote contemporary 
worship music, even though most contemporary worship music is like 50 years old now. <laughs> What's wrong with contemporary worship? Where hath God forbidden this? Well, God didn't forbid it. Oh, so it's audiophora, so it's free. Not necessarily. And especially not in this case, where what's really being slipped into the church is a Trojan horse. Something that appears to be a gift and a blessing, but inside holds destruction. Let's all worship like Baptists. Why? Maybe we'll attract some people. There's the gift. Okay? But where's the destruction? You can't detach form and substance. So when you bring in the Baptistic worship, you're just training the next generation to leave the Lutheran church and go be Baptists, which is, quote-unquote, non-denominational. That's all you're doing. Why would they stay in your church where the octogenarians are behind the guitars and the contemporary stuff's been doing po- is, is being done poorly when they could just go to Slick Rick's church up the road or the big box What's Happening Now church and get the young 20-something women singers and gyrators with the guys wearing flannel shirts in the background and the latest fashion trends. Okay, so all we're doing through the changing of these rites is undermining the entire Lutheran identity and training a generation to either A, remain and not be Lutheran, or B, go out somewhere else where they can actually manifest fully as Baptistic, quote-unquote, non-denominationals. So, again, this category of adiaphora has been so wildly abused in the LCMS uh, that it's, it's frankly obscene. And if Luther or Chemnitz were to descend upon what we've got going on, they would not celebrate our diversity. Both men say, no. We ha- even if we have freedom toward God, we are binding ourselves in unity, in love toward one another, so that we have the same worship, the same forms, okay? so that we're walking together, not only in our faith, but also in our practice. Okay, sorry for that little sermon, and I know largely I'm preaching to the choir, but it is important um, for the choir, nonetheless, to have the proper lens with which to view what's going on in the church today, and how adiaphora as a concept is being exploited, even though Christ, St. Paul, and here Martin Chemnitz warn us of this exploitation. All right, picking up midstream then in the middle of 78, that paragraph, um, right after 1 Corinthians 7.19 has been cited, the next sentence cites Romans 14. So, and Romans 14, 1 through 2, 6, he, that is Paul, yields to the weak with regard to food and observance of special days. But after false brethren had unobtrusively entered in to spy on Christian liberty to see how they might bring Christians into bondage and with such observations subtly introduce and establish their corrupt opinions. Then he really declares most earnestly, Galatians 2.5, to them we gave place by subjection, not even for the time being, that the truth of the gospel might remain among you. So when someone is using adiaphora to undermine the word of God and you sniff it out, your duty bound by the word of God, your conscience bound to put your heel down on the throat of that quote-unquote adiaphora because it ceased to be adiaphora. If it's an indifferent thing that's being used contrary to the scriptures, it's been weaponized, you see. So adiaphora in itself may be indifferent, but in its use ceases to be because it's weaponized against the word of God. Is that distinction? I know it's subtle, but hopefully that is beginning to make sense. And this is where you find out real quick if you have a pastor who understands theology or not, uh, because this is really the way in which the church gets subverted. It's not like, hey, everyone, God's word says X. We think not X. Well, you're out. I mean, Satan doesn't show up, you know, in his, in his little red skin face paint and his little red suit and his little horns and his little, and say, and say, hi, I'm Satan. I'd like to take you away from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
nobody's going to buy that. But what always inevitably happens is Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and so do all false teachers and false teachings, and they come into the church, and they typically don't directly contradict God's word at first. They take something that is indifferent and start to use that to leverage and subvert. And once they gain enough power, then they actually will attack God's word, but not until they have that power. So it's the proverbial nose of the camel getting under the tent. If you let that nose in, the whole thing's coming in. So you may as well keep the nose out. It's always so used with the snake more more apropos given the scriptural imagery, but you don't let the snake get its head in, the rest of the body's going to follow. So you want to nip this in the bud right away when you see something, oh, it's just audio offer, oh, it's just free, starting to get imported into the church like a Trojan horse. All right, did I see a hand or a question? We're okay? All right. Looks like we finished 78 then, so we'll go on to 79. Are the forensic or judicial and political laws of Moses likewise abrogated? Answer. God has shown that the political laws of Moses have been abrogated by the very fact of the complete overthrow and destruction of the whole Jewish state. That's referring to 70 AD. For where there is neither authority nor state, there can be no use of public laws. The apostles also testified the same, for they did not impose the public laws of the Mosaic state on those converted from the Gentiles, but permitted them freely to retain and use their accustomed judicial laws. Rather, the apostles themselves submitted themselves to the public laws of the Gentiles and wanted Christians to be subject to those same laws." And there's lots of examples given, but you'll notice most famously Romans 13 listed therein, wherein we are to account the civil rulers as ministers of God. So it is the, we often use this distinction between the civil sphere and the ecclesiastical sphere as the left-hand kingdom, the civil reign, and the right-hand kingdom, the ecclesiastical or churchly reign. But what we need to remember, of course, is that this is the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom of Christ. Christ rules both realms, okay? So insofar as the civil laws are not contrary to Christ, we should see them as established immediately by him, and we should abide by them. But where they contradict the law of Christ, now we're duty-bound to stand against them because we recognize that a kind of tyranny is occurring, a kind of usurpation and rebellion against Christ, usurpation of his authority and rebellion against him, bearing itself out in laws that then we as Christians cannot abide precisely because of our loyalty to Christ. So, obviously, that's a complex topic, but just alluded to here. The general Christian attitude is the servants of the state are the servants of God. And we don't need to reimpose, especially Old Testament ceremonial law. Or, yeah, or civil law, either one. But I should have said civil. I think that's more in view. Okay, question 80. Do they then want this, that among Christians there ought to be no authority, no political government, no courts? Ah, so does the ideal Christian community kind of just look like a hippie commune? Well, Matthew 20, 25, and 26, and 1 Corinthians two fifteen are cited. Christ there speaks not of the office of a political magistrate, but of the ministry of the apostles, and that he declares ought not to be such a lordship or supereminence as there is in the states of the world. 
Okay, so you'll remember Christ talking about how his disciples aren't going to lord it over one another, and Paul uses that same language of, I'm not going to lord it over your faith. So there is a, there is a kind of distinction. What happens if you disobey your civil ruler? Well, there's going to be a bodily consequence. There's going to be a fine, or there's going to be some... Uh, some kind of class you have to take on a Saturday, or there's going to be some imprisonment. Okay, there's going to be an immediate forceful consequence. Now, not so in the church. Okay, if you disobey the pastor or the bishop, or district president as we call them, or whatever, okay, there's not this kind of forceful, all right, you're going to get thrown into jail. All right, you owe a fine. It'll be over there in your little puka box in the narthex. Uh, There's not that kind of imposition. There's not lording it over one another. Obviously, there comes a point in time in which there's church discipline, but that's the whole church recognizing impenitent sin. So, there is a distinction between the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom and how these are being run. And that's really what's in the backdrop of Matthew 20 and 1 Corinthians 2. Okay, so even though... Christ is saying, look, there's not to be you know, one greater than the other, but the greatest of all is the servant of all. And Paul's saying, look, I'm your servant, not your Lord to lord it over you. Okay, then just because this is the way the right-hand kingdom functions doesn't mean that that's the way the left-hand kingdom should function. What kind of example do we see where maybe that's... Uh, You see this kind of in the Anabaptistic traditions, um, the Amish traditions that are generally speaking pacifistic, uh, anti-government in extreme cases. So you do find historical examples of these, and these ideas were extant at the 16th century. All right, so continuing on with Chemnitz, and Paul in the passage cited does not discuss this, whether and how the courts of the world are to be constituted and administered, but he treats of this, that natural, and the Greek word is soukkon, and purely animal man of himself, by his own reason and understanding, can can neither understand nor discern the spiritual things that God himself uh, and our salvation, the things that concern God himself and our salvation. But the spiritual pneumaticons, so you can see the difference between Paul's use, sukakon and pneumaticon. So, but the spiritual man, the pneumaticon man, who has been enlightened by the Spirit of God from the divine word, and according to that word, both can and ought to discern all things. But the gospel in the New Testament does not abolish political authority with the whole civil administration once instituted by God, but approves and establishes them as a divine ordinance to which also Christians ought to be subject for the sake of the Lord and conscience. The usual suspects cited there with Romans 13.5 and 1 Peter 2.13. Chemnitz continues, in fact, Christians can perform and administer the political functions of government in good conscience. And I think that's Psalm 2.10. Also testify the examples of Joseph of Arimathea, Cornelius, Sergius, etc. Okay, so again, in the Anabaptistic traditions, you have this idea of you can't be a soldier, you can't be a judge, you can't be a government official and be a Christian. Because Christianity is against lording it over others. And and what Kenneth is saying, along with St. Paul, is, whoa, that's a confusion of the two kingdoms. You're taking the right-hand kingdom and trying to make it everywhere. Which, by the way, error happens, I think, frequently today, where Christians are under the impression that, hey, because the church in Acts held everything in common, And because many sold significant portions of their personal property and donated it to the collective good, this was distributed corporately, then this is the proof text for communism, and thus all true Christians are communists, and we should be pushing this early book of Acts 
form of Christianity as the government of the world. Okay? That is a confusion of the two kingdoms, the right hand and the left hand. And the right hand kingdom is not meant to push out the left hand kingdom. The right hand kingdom, for example, is the kingdom of repentance and forgiveness. How is that going to work in the left hand kingdom as a principle? So somebody comes and kills me and then is put on trial and they say, I am heartily sorry and sincerely repent of killing Rhodey. Will you grant forgiveness instead of imprisoning me? The right hand kingdom says, Yeah, we have to grant forgiveness. How's that going to work for a civil society? It's not. So there again is just an egregious example. But this idea of trying to take the right-hand kingdom and make it the one kingdom is not what we're called to do, and it's foolish. Make sense? (laughs) Right? Yeah. Yeah, please. Let's say I stole money from the church. Yeah. So that would be kind of bold, but even the church may say, we forgive you, but they may say, well, we want you to do something for restitution for that sure. money. Yeah. Sure, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously that within the church, there's, there's, a, there's a certain wisdom that has to get used in that situation brought up. You're reminding me of my favorite scene from Les Mis where uh, Jean Valjean steals the, I think it's the silver candelabra, and, uh, you know, and he, he gets caught. I think he's freshly out of his prison scene. I need to go reflect, reflect on that and refresh my mind. But I think, yeah, he's just served his. So he got nailed for, like, stealing, the proverbial stealing a loaf of bread for his starving family and, like, serves, I don't know what it is, some ungodly sum of 10 or 15 years or whatever. And he's angry and upset at the system, angry and upset at God and, Anyway, he ends up stealing the silver from the church, and he gets drugged back to the bishop or whoever he is there at the church. And the bishop sees that he's been stolen from, that the church has been stolen from, and with great fleetness of foot, he simply says, Oh, I gave those to him as a gift. And not only those, but also these. You forgot to take the rest. And this, of course, utterly converts and transforms Jean Valjean. It's the beginning of his godliness and a complete change of his soul. So, yeah, the church doesn't need to relinquish its freedom to do beautiful, wonderful things. But in that case, let's say you've got a treasurer who embezzles, you know, a substantive amount of money. Let's say 100000 bucks or something disappears. All right. Now, this is the way some Christians think. Well, since we're in the right-hand kingdom, it's the kingdom of grace, we need to, of course, like confront him. All right, did you steal it? Yeah, fine, I stole it. Are you repentant? Yeah, I'm repentant. Okay, I forgive you. Okay, um, does that mean I can still be treasurer? Well, yeah, anything less than that wouldn't be forgiveness. So keep on, keep it on. Uh, yeah, that's not wise. That's dumb. Even in the right hand, <laughs> that's dumb, and that's not how it should work. It should be like, okay, you're forgiven, but no, you can't be treasurer. Do you have a plan to make restitution? <laughs> okay, that would, that would be a proper way to proceed. Another proper way to proceed, though, would be like, look, this person isn't penitent, or, um, hey, maybe this person is penitent, but we have suspicion to believe that, I mean, they've been in this position in other companies. Probably they've stolen from other companies as well. And the right thing to do pastorally and as a congregation would be to say, hey, you've got matters to settle. Uh, you, You have the forgiveness of Christ. Let's assume he's truly repentant. You have the forgiveness of Christ, but now this, you need to bear fruits worthy of repentance, fruits worthy of this reconciliation to God. If there is a new man and a new heart within you, then you need to make right on what you've made wrong. And there may indeed be a way in which he hands himself over to the courts and says, what does restitution look like? So that would be another example of how that could be worked out. Again, we've got some freedom there. Um, But I think the biblical categories still stand of the right and left-hand kingdom. And it's not our job as Christians to take the principles of the right-hand kingdom and use them to abrogate the left-hand kingdom. Um, Nor 
should the left-hand kingdom be used to abrogate the right-hand kingdom and intrude within? And really, that's the essence of um, the First Amendment in our country, isn't it? The free speech, and particularly in religious, that, those religious protections. Do I have that right, or am I groggy on that? I think that's right. The religious uh, protections that are given to us keep the state from intruding and telling us what we can and can't say. That's what it says anyway, yeah. Well, yeah. So the state shouldn't interfere with the church. Of course, in the 16th century, that looks a little different because you've got bishops setting themselves up as uh, left-hand kingdom princes. So you've got this blurring together of the two in a really unhelpful way. That's where a lot of the 16th century writings are coming from. I mean, so there you have sort of an, almost an intrusion of the church into the civil sphere as the church's leaders are becoming the civil leaders. So there's a lot of pushback on that. We used to have to be careful because I think in our day and age, like is that even a concern? Is that even on the radar that a bunch of church leaders are taking over government? <laughs> I mean, we're so far away from that. It's ridiculous. Okay, so we're completely on the line of governmental intrusion into the church and state rulers overstepping their bounds and telling us what we can and can't think, can and can't say, can and can't do. And that's what we need to realize. So whereas the Reformation quotes are largely pushed against the opposite error, we can't allow those to be leveraged against us when we need to move now against the error that they're not dealing with. Yeah, please. I think there are people who think there is danger from the church teaching. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And more so now with the statement on the bottom of page 52. Mm-hmm. And that's regarding natural law. But he treats of this, that natural and purely animal man himself, by his own reason and understanding, so forth, can discern, cannot discern spiritual things. Now, how do we deal with natural law and what Paul says in Romans? Yeah, well, strictly speaking, natural law isn't a... I mean, this to use Paul's categories... Natural law does not is innate to the natural man, but that's not spiritual. Spiritual is going to be Christian in the proper sense, enlightened by the Holy Spirit. So being baptized in the Spirit, you become a spiritual man. But he says men are without excuse. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Because the judgment of God... so. The Jew has, to make Paul's argument, the Jew has the Ten Commandments. He has the law. He's without excuse. What then of the Gentile who has not been given the Sinaitic covenant with the stone tablets of law? And Paul says he has that very same law written on his heart, accusing him or excusing him. So he's not without excuse either. In other words, according to St. Paul, you can know that there's a God and that you have offended him without ever even hearing a word of Scripture. You You can simply know that by creation... And by your own fallen state and, by, and your conscience accusing you, and inevitably by your own ugly death. You can infer that, I mean, you can not infer even, you can know beyond the shadow of a doubt that there is a God and you have fallen short of his glory. And anything, anything, any rejection of that is you suppressing the truth. That's what St. Paul says. Okay? All of that's just natural. Okay? What Paul means by the spiritual distinction is when the gospel comes then and speaks to that condemnation, either the condemnation of the external law via the Ten Commandments or the condemnation of the internal law via the conscience, it speaks to that condemnation and says there is salvation for you but in Christ and in no other because he is the atoning sacrifice for these sins of yours. When one believes that and receives the Holy Spirit, one becomes a spiritual man with different impulses. So again, apart from that conversion, you only have the left-hand kingdom. You only have the natural civil sphere. 
with the coming of the Holy Spirit, you now have a right-hand kingdom and a, king, a spiritual kingdom and spiritual men who are capable of much, much more and much, much greater than the natural man. Well, I th- you know, in our, in our situation, it's like this culture is pushing against natural law. Itself. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's been a project for quite a while, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the idea that um, law is simply defined democratically or socially or by an oligarchy or uh, some sort of hierarchy of uh, (laughs) self-proclaimed elites or intellectuals or the academy or whatever the case may be, this idea that law itself is a human invention, that's at root in a post-enlightenment world. And, of course, St. Paul is pre-enlightenment, and St. Paul, along with us and with all spiritual men, are saying, no, the law is of God. The law is eternal and natural and is not subject to change. All that a society is doing in changing laws is either more closely or less closely reflecting that law which exists, period, whether it's acknowledged or not. Okay, we've already gone over time. Let's continue the conversation, but off the record. The Lord be with you.